Hey, this is Kelly Whiffen. Thanks for joining us today for the Encounter Church podcast. We all want to live lives of better decisions and fewer regrets. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, we believe the next 30 minutes can be one of the most helpful and hopeful parts of your week. At the end of the podcast, stay tuned for a couple messages. Thanks again for joining us today. Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. Uh, my name is Chris Causey. I'm the lead pastor here, and we're so glad that you are here. Summer is kicked off, and we're in the midst of a series that last week we started that um, I really do believe can be so incredibly helpful and practical for you, even as you step into your summer. The series is The Beginner's Guide to Predicting Your Future, not the future. That would be a different series, and that would probably lead to a lot of you being wealthy because then you would have tips and tricks to invest in the stock market and know which things to dive into and what to ignore. And, you know, you could skip whole fashion trends if you knew the future, right? Um, It's not that kind of series. It's really a series about your future. And fortunately, predicting your future is a whole lot easier than predicting the future. Uh, When you go back through history and you just read what people um, imagined. I lived through 2000. I don't know if for those people who remember that, the world was supposed to blow up and computers were going to rise up and take over everything, right? I mean, so we missed sometimes. We just missed the whole thing. But the challenge is, is we also miss it with ourselves, too. In order to talk about our future, I want to take us back to a past moment. On August 18th of 1913, it was an ordinary night in Monte Carlo, the casino there that's now world famous. A group of people had begun to notice something around the roulette table. The the ball just kept landing on black. Happened one time, then two, three, four, five. And as each spin of the wheel happened and the ball landed on black, more and more people began to gather closer and closer to the table. They were convinced as they started to slide their money in that red was about to come. And eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, black, black, black. And more and more people coming to the table because it's about to hit red. Red's about to fall. And more and more people pushing more and more money in it. 13, 14, 15, 16, black. Black, black. So now a huge crowd is gathered around as that little wheel is spinning. And now we're at 20, 21, 22. And people are just sliding it all in because the next time it is red. 24, 25, 26. Black, black, black. The 27th time red finally hit. And unfortunately, the crowds that had gathered to push all their money in ended up having lost about millions and millions of dollars that night because they were absolutely convinced that the next turn of the will was going to give them red. Now, statistically speaking, for those more mathematically inclined in the room, you recognize that statistically speaking, it can fall on black a hundred times. There's nothing that makes the next time. There's nothing about this spin that makes red any more inclined than the last time. It's just 50% every single time. It's like flipping a coin. It's not really going to matter. And yet people saw in that table, people saw in that will an opportunity that they were convinced was going to turn towards their way. They were absolutely convinced that red was going to be the next time. And when some famous researchers began to try to understand the biggest challenge for people in decision-making, i.e. ourselves, 
and our brains, and they begin to dive into the, the things that oftentimes are barriers to decision-making and making wise choices, one of the things that they did was they took this moment, this Monte Carlo casino moment, and they labeled it the Monte Carlo fallacy or the gambler's fallacy. It's a heuristic if you like to read that kind of stuff. Thinking Fast and Slow is a phenomenal book if you ever want to read a really thick textbook about this kind of stuff. But it's fascinating. It's, it's almost like our human brain works against us sometimes in making decisions. And what I want to do today is kind of shift gears a little bit. The next two weeks, I'm really excited about. But today, I want to I want to be more of a master class than a message, more of a seminar than a sermon. I want to kind of talk about decision making, and not right or wrong decision makings. Uh, the Bible's really helpful when it comes to right and wrong. Um, it's pretty clear. It's pretty explicit. Um, it's kind of famous for that, right? The Ten Commandments in that moment. Um, there are 613 different statutes of things of what to do and not to do in the Old Testament alone. I want to take a look at another part of decision-making. There's decision-making around things that isn't right or wrong. It's in the gray area. Those parts where you just don't know what to do or you step into a situation and you just feel overwhelmed by it and you can easily fall into the trap that those people fell into that night in Monte Carlo. It's this gray area that I want to talk about that give you a few different principles to guide you in that process. And fortunately for us, Scripture doesn't just deal with the black and the white, the right and the wrong. It also has an entire book dedicated to the gray and how to make decisions in the gray that can help us live a life filled with better decisions and fewer regrets. That book is a book that's probably my favorite book um, that you hear me talk about a lot. It's the book of Proverbs. It's a book that was meant to be memorized. It was a book filled with pithy little sayings. It was originally written with an intention of a parent preparing their child, but there's a uniqueness to it in that the parent was a king and the child was to be the future king. And one of the biggest pressures, in, especially in 10th century BC, that one of the biggest pressures about being a king was you were often the decision maker. The judicial system and the kind of royal legal system, they were kind of bound together. And so if there was a decision that people weren't sure about, if there was a heavy decision that the people in your kingdom had, they ultimately could come before you and ask for you to make the decision for them. Imagine that's your job. You show up every day and people come to you with the decisions they don't know how to solve. In some ways, that may feel like parenting but to a whole different level. Right? These, these are life and death kind of moments, and people are coming into you saying, give me the answer. And so Solomon, who is the writer of the book of Proverbs in 10th century BC, is, fills this book with plenty of principles to help his child make better decisions because that's ultimately one of the responsibilities he's going to have as king. And today, while there are hundreds of Proverbs scattered throughout the book of Proverbs, I want to just give you four that I think are really good anchor points to help guide you and just as you go into the course of life. And, and I say earlier that it's more seminar than sermon and that I can't sit down with each one of you individually and say, what decision are you making? Here's how to apply it. But if you memorize these Proverbs, if you store them inside your brain, what you'll find is that these things really will bring extra light and guidance as you walk through the course of everyday life. And so these four different Proverbs 
are going to be what we run through this morning. The first proverb comes from Proverbs 18, 17. And if you downloaded the app, you'll find this already loaded in there for you. Um, if you're still downloading, it'll be on the screens behind me. Proverbs 18, 17 says, in a lawsuit, the first to speak seems right until someone comes forward and cross-examines. Remember, these are Proverbs, so they're short, they're succinct, and they're meant to be memorized, and that this is written, prepared for a king. And this child listening that day, being trained, recognizes that this is part of what I'm going to have to do. Someone's going to come to me, and he's saying, son, I want you to be aware. You're going to have two people walk into a room, and one's going to start to say something, and you're going to be like, yeah, yeah, that's right. And then the other one is going to start to say something, and you're going to be like, yeah, yeah, they're right. I don't know if you've ever, because my job, I sometimes experience this. If you've ever sat in a room with a couple, right? And, 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 and you can, you're like, yeah, she's right. Yeah, he's right. They're both wrong, right? I mean, you sit and you listen. You're like, oh my goodness. Like you can easily get sucked into a story. And he's trying to warn his son, look, one of the most dangerous things when you first come across a decision is the danger of perspective, that if you only have one perspective, you're going to be limited in your decision making. And oftentimes that's what happens, right? You only have one side of the story. And he's like, make sure that you realize that there is multiple sides. There is never one side to any story. Oftentimes there are three sides. There are their side, their side, and then the truth. And your goal is to try to read between the first two to get to the third. And he's saying, son, I want you to understand perspective can cloud you if you're not careful. I came across a really interesting study, I think, that illustrates this. It was in the um, 2015 JAMA Internal Medicine um, Journal Medicine. Um, it was this strange study. I don't know exactly what prompted it, but some researchers were interested. What happens when national cardiology um, conferences go on? What happens in hospitals around America when there's some major kind of cardiological event? When all the doctors travel to this one location for the course of the event. And what they found is every time that there was some kind of major um, meeting or conference around cardiology, all the doctors would travel to that. What they noticed that when they documented it across the year, um, that you were less likely to die if you arrived at the hospital um, with some type of a cardiac arrest or some type of heart failure, you were less likely to die when there was a cardiology meeting going on than when it was not. Why? Because all the cardiologists were not there. Now, hear me. I'm not saying if you're a cardiologist that you kill people. That's not the point. The point is, what they found in the study is that oftentimes when a patient would arrive at the hospital under these conditions, a cardiologist, because that's their specialty, because that's what they do, because they've done it for so long, they instantly jump to some self-drawn conclusions. They've seen a hundred of these, so it's probably that. Versus... When someone walks into the door and you've got a group of general physicians and they have to ask more questions, they have to understand a little bit more of the back history, they have to go and kind of scan through a couple of journals, reach out to some friends because they're not 100% sure. And so the decisions they make, even though it's more difficult for them, oftentimes had a little bit of an edge over the cardiologist. And it's, I think, an issue of perspective. 
that oftentimes when you have one perspective, if you're a hammer, then the whole world is a nail to you. And this is essentially what Solomon is trying to warn his son about. Son, be careful. When you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Gain perspective. Ask lots of questions. Assume you're wrong and try to find out how you might be wrong. Make sure that you dig in. What are the parts that if someone was to ask you, you would say, I don't know, and figure out what it is you don't know. Like, take some time, gain perspective, because in the end, it helps you. Because oftentimes, emotions and wishful thinking can cloud our judgment. He gives his son another one because he recognized that when you step back and you gain perspective, it opens up a whole new arena of decision-making to you. And so he gives him Proverbs fourteen fifteen In another conversation, he says, The simple believe anything, but the prudent give thought to their steps. He's saying, look, the simple, I've already warned you. You hear that one side and you want to dive in. Okay, so you've heard my warning about perspective. Now, you've heard all sides. Now, I want you to know prudent, that's the wise. The wise actually give thought to their steps. They, they think through all the different possible outcomes of what a decision could lead to. They understand the potential problem that's present and what's in front of them. And they work through this thing in a way that helps them make a decision. Now, what I love about this proverb and why I love Proverbs in general is that oftentimes these were written thousands of years before any psychologist ever did a study when cardiologists go out of town. And yet the truth is already there. And this is one of those that I think is just so humorous because it, it kind of pinpoints a human tendency. There are, I don't have to know all of you to know that there are probably two groups in this room. One group is very action-oriented. You're presented with a problem, or there's a decision you have to make. You hate ambiguity. You hate not making a decision, so you just make one. Because you can't steer a parked car, right? Whatever little pithy thing you have in your head. Like you just got to get, you got to make some motion, movement, and get on out there. You can figure it out while it falls apart, right? Action. I'd rather do the wrong thing than do no thing. Because you got that action bias. You don't like sitting uncomfortably in ambiguity and I don't know and what ifs. And then you've got the other side of you, and probably most of you are actually married to each other, if I'm being honest with you. One of you is married to this one, the analysis paralysis person. When they're faced with a decision, they lock up. And they start trying to, well, what if this happens? And what if this happens? And what if this happens? And, you know, there could be a meteorite that comes. And, I mean, it's just like all of it hits you in the face and you freeze up. Where this person has already started to run, it's like shoot, ready, aim. This person's like, do we really know what we're trying to hit? I think we should sit on this for a few weeks before we, we really decide if we should tackle this problem, you know? And I think this would be helpful. And it's analysis paralysis. It's the exact opposite. And this proverb speaks to both. It's like, look, don't go running off on something just because you think you need action. But simultaneously, you have to take a step. Right? There's, there's some motion implied in this proverb. And one of the things that I'd like to help you with, this is a really helpful framework for me, um, 
is a framework that I came across. Um, I study a lot of different things, and one of the things that I'm fascinated by is investment strategies. Not because I have any money or because I do it, but just simply because I study a lot of what people do because I'm so fascinated by it. And one day, I don't know, years ago, I decided I want to learn how those people think because that would be interesting. Um, I also want to know how, like, sword makers think, okay? So you have to realize... It's a problem. The doctor said, I've got to live with it, right? And so, but one of the things I was fascinated by, it was like, man, that would be a lot of pressure if you're like a Warren Buffett, right? And people are literally putting their retirement hopes in your decision-making, right? It's like, I remember one time going off on the kick and studying how jet fighter pilots make decisions because I'm like, man, you're like flying a billion-dollar machine. I drive a Buick, but you got a billion-dollar machine. Like, how do you navigate that? Or like major league baseball players or professional athletes who kind of swim in all those places because I'm just so, when, when the pressure is on, how do they make a decision? And, um, and so one of the things that it was helpful was studying one investment banker and him walking through his decision making. He gave this framework that I'd never seen before. And I was like, man, that is so brilliant. And it is so biblical. And that it was just a modern day proverb of taking a step back and realizing that not all decisions feel the same. I don't know if, if you have analysis paralysis, picking out the flavor of cereal or vacation feels about the same as buying a house or picking a spouse, right? It, it feels, it all feels heavy. And this framework, the reversible decision framework um, has kind of, it's a two by two matrix. So you've got on one side reversible or irreversible, and then you've got consequential or inconsequential. And oftentimes we lock up, we freeze up, or we're not sure what kind of decision. And what I love about it is this one kind of introduces four different possibilities. So when you're faced with a decision, you've got some, some decisions that are reversible, inconsequential, right? That would be like getting a haircut, right? It's reversible and it's inconsequential. Should I shave my beard? Reversible and inconsequential. You've got irreversible, ir inconsequential, like trying a new food. You can't untry it, but it really didn't matter. So you don't like frog legs. Now you know, right? You don't have to worry about changing the decision, and the decision did not orient or change or transform the quality of your life. But then you move into this quadrant, right, where you have reversible, consequential, we're like, this is an actual consequential decision. And this one, along with its neighbor, are the two most important parts of decision-making. When you are faced with a decision that falls into one of those two quadrants, then there is a little bit of pressure. If it's underneath, it does not matter. It may be inconvenient, but at the end of the day, it's not going to impact your life the way the first two. The reversible consequential is something like buying a car where you know you have a return policy. It, yeah, it's consequential. It costs a lot of money. Or booking a vacation, but it's, and you're not sure about the dates, but you know that there's, as long as you cancel within a month out, you get all your money back. Like, it's actually reversible. You can kind of walk through the door and you're like, I don't like it. Then you, you kind of turn around. Reversible consequential, you want to gather evidence, you want to think about it. But you don't want to drown in it because you can reverse it. It's not permanent. The ones that are the most essential, the ones that, quite honestly, few of us have to deal with this regularly, 
this is not a quadrant that most of us will, will have this many decisions in our life that are both consequential and irreversible. Consequential and irreversible is like having a baby, right? There's no receipt, can't return, and it's irreversible. It's like, well, hello, child, and it's got some consequences to it. And so, yeah, that's an important moment in your life. But what I love about the book of Proverbs is that what Solomon's trying to do is prepare his son for what's unique to his role, which is a king lives in the consequential, irreversible realm. Because a king in this day, the king in this day decided if to go to war, when to go to war, life and death, executions hung in his hands. And so to be a king meant to live in that upper quadrant where you made the choice and there was no turning back. And he wanted his son to have some understanding and some frameworks because at the end of the day, you're making, a de- you're making a decision that will transform families and the nations around you. And whether or not to decide to go to war to the neighbor to your left or to your right is a pretty heavy consequential irreversible decision, which is why I think you see this other theme. It's not just gaining perspectives, not just having possible outcomes and understanding the decision. There's another theme that's constant throughout the book of Proverbs, and it's around the wisdom found in people. And in fact, you have it in, said this way in Proverbs eleven fourteen, when he says, for a lack of guidance, a nation falls. Right? The king has to make decisions, but victory is won through many advisors. So having a wise counsel of people around you who have a different perspective, who have a different understanding, who have different life experiences, those individuals help to protect you. They can bring victory, he says. And without it, he said, reality is your nation, it can fall. He's like, son, what I'm about to entrust to you is not permanent. It hinges on your decisions. Imagine the weight of that. I know we're thousands of years removed, but the the first time this thing gets said, it's to a 12-year-old boy who knows he will make a choice that can destroy his entire people. Like, that's pressure. And he's saying, son... I've taught you about perspective. I've talked to you about having understanding and possible outcomes and all the different weights of what decisions are. But here's, here's the trump card, son. Here's where victory can be found. It's in the advice of many advisors. And I appreciate him saying advisors. That doesn't mean necessarily your best friends who see it the way you see it. Right? That's Some of us could say, oh, I do this. I get advice from my friends. No, advisors, would you ask or trust your friend to make a major life decision on your behalf? If the answer is no, right? If your friend can't navigate from here to Maine, they do not need to be giving you life direction. If they can't balance a checkbook, they should not give you financial advice. I don't care how much you like them. Because the danger and the word advisors is so helpful is because there's another one of these tricky things our brains like to do called confirmation bias. 
And confirmation bias is another one of these human brain tendencies where we seek out things that agree with us. We all do it. I don't care how educated you are. You know, this is confirmation bias is when you Google and websites pop up and you click the one that you know you're going to agree with, but it has someone who's smarter than you. So it sounds better than what you would say. Like, see, this person's smart. Listen to how they said that. I knew I was right. That's confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is why, let me get a little political, is why you have Fox News and MSNBC. That's why both those channels exist. Because you have parties who want to listen to people who think the way they think and say what they say. I one of like prior to recent, uh, it's just crazy now, but I used to enjoy flipping back and forth between those two channels and hearing how different the two things were. Like one camp, the world was falling apart. The other camp, it was the greatest day ever. And I'm like, these people are literally looking at the exact same thing. And I would just get angry. And I had to stop watching the news because it was like, these people do not listen or understand the other side. They live in an echo chamber. And I'm telling you, like an echo chamber is a dangerous place to live. You want people in your life who do not agree with you and do not see eye to eye with you always. One of the most valuable things that you will ever find in life is someone who is wise, who doesn't agree with you. One of the best things you'll ever find. If you have someone in your life who will challenge you, who will call out things, who disagrees with you, do not be threatened by them. Be thankful for them. Because through many advisors comes victory. It is a gift to sit around the room and have people's perspective and experience and education and their, their different kind of wirings bring something to the surface that you didn't see. Especially when you're living in the realm like a king of decisions that are consequential and irreversible. You want people around the table who question whether or not you should send that village into war. And while it may not be today you're deciding if a village should be burned or if a war should be launched with your nation or your neighbor, the reality is, is that for some of us, we're in the midst of really difficult life decision right now. And you feel overwhelmed by it. And a couple of phone calls with the right people could change your whole perspective and your whole kind of emotional stability in the midst of it. Because all of a sudden you'll have outside voices who see things you don't see, giving you advice that you would never come up with on your own. And what I love about the Proverbs is when you read it, you do see these patterns in that ultimately in the day, Solomon wanted to make sure that his son had something really critical. He's like, look, boy, I don't want you just to have statements of wisdom. I want you to be connected to the source of wisdom. Like, it's good to have perspective and to realize there's always two or three sides to every story. Son, it's good to have thought through the potential outcomes that can play out, what decision you're really dealing with and what problem you're really trying to solve. And it's wonderful to sit around the table with people who are advisors who can speak into your situation. But what I want for you desperately, son, is for you to have a connection to the source of wisdom. Which is why one of the major themes through the book of Proverbs deals with 
Proverbs 9.10 is just a restatement of what's repeated frequently, and it's this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Now, for us as English speakers, um, separated by 3,000 years from when this was written, we hear fear of the Lord, and what instantly jumps into our mind is what's been shaped by uh, Roman and Greek mythologies, and perhaps if you grew up in some type of religious system where nuns slapped you on the wrist when you didn't listen, or you were just kind of chastised if you ever thought about making a bad choice. But this isn't, this isn't have any of that baggage, the fear of the Lord is not Zeus with a lightning bolt waiting to strike you in the hiney because you did something wrong. The fear of the Lord was a Hebrew idea because these are Jewish people. And the Jewish concept of the fear of the Lord was a, a holy appreciation and reverence. It was an understanding that, man, this thing is big. This thing is terrifying. I have a little bit of that whenever I hold a chainsaw. Because I realize I'm holding something that if I do something wrong with, I could lose a leg or an arm. It's like I have a little bit of healthy fear attached to it. And this is more of what fear of the Lord is. It's a reverence. It's an awe. It's an appreciation of how big, great, powerful God must be. But what he's really trying to set for his son is to think about in this day and age, he's the king. He lives his life in front of the audience of many, but he's not accountable to anyone. There's no one that checks him. Every day, he checks everyone else. And he's trying to help his son to realize that while you may have an audience of many, you can easily fall into the trap of being accountable to no one. And son, I want your heart and your mind to be reoriented, not around people, but the fact that there is a person that is your audience of one to whom you are accountable. I want you to realize that what you do in the course of everyday life and what you do when no one else is watching, all of that, all of that is done in the presence of the audience of one who sees everything. And what that does is that ratchets up your internal decision-making framework because you realize that like my entire life, is lived before the audience of one. Your entire life is lived before the audience of one. And that's not a condemning thought. It's actually a freeing thought because it puts wind in yourselves. It gives you the power to make good decisions when all the other people around you are making bad ones. Like it gives you confidence. If you're a teenager and you're watching all your friends make a series of choices and yet you know, I'm not making a decision for them. I'm making a decision for him. I know there's an audience of one. And because of that, I can be confident even if it hurts to make this decision. Because sometimes it hurts to make the right decision. Sometimes there's a cost to making the wise decision. But when you have the audience of one, it changes how you understand. For me, this was crystallized in my life about seven or eight years ago, probably one of, one of the most defining moments in my life. And I've talked about this man before. His name was Dr. Milne. In fact, my son will be born, Lord willing, around mid-August. Um, and his name is Henry. And Henry is named after Dr. Milne because it was Henry Milne. That's the shape of this man 
impact on my life. I, I am the husband. I am the father. I am the pastor that I am. I, I'm in ministry because of him. And he invested his life into to men like me. Meeting me for breakfast. He was one of, one of the world's best eye surgeons. And in the course of, in his 50s, he developed an incredibly rare form of cancer that put him on the last kind of half decade of his life struggling with a lot of um, personal sickness. So I remember getting a phone call and driving down to the, the hospital because they were like, we don't think he's going to uh, live uh, another day. And so, you know, it's that final moment with him and I'm sharing everything about my life and how grateful I am and how much I love him and how he didn't have to be my father, but he wanted to be. So he stepped in into my life. And I've shared this before, like he gave me LASIK eye surgery, which was such a fitting wedding gift because he did change the way I see the world. And, and it really did shape who I saw and how I saw the world. And so much of the, honestly, you guys are beneficial. Like you are the beneficiaries of him. The encouragement, the, the desire, the belief I have in what God could do in your life. I learned that from him eating breakfast at 6 a.m. on Wednesday mornings. And so as I'm sharing just a life of gratitude to him, he passes away. And I walked to the car, and, and I had about a two-hour drive home. And I remember driving down the road and just the reality of it and kind of through my tears, I, I, it kind of hit me. Like there's this Bible passage in one of Jesus' teachings where he tells the story of a man who's finally seeing God and how he's lived his life well, and as he's walking in, to kind of that moment, um, God says, well done, son. Good job. Enter into your rest. And I remember being like, oh, my goodness, I know what's happening in heaven right now. Like, I literally know what's happening right now in heaven. Don't normally get to say that, right? But right now in heaven, like, he's walking up to Jesus. Like, it's no longer the name of Jesus that we've talked about. It's no longer the name of Jesus that he, he sang about when he was in church because we went to church together. Now it's like the face of Jesus. It's not the name of Jesus. It's the face of Jesus. It's like when you email somebody back and forth and you've never met them and then you finally walk in and you're like, oh my goodness, it's such a pleasure to meet you. We've only emailed. We've only texted. You're a real human. You're real. And I'm like, that's happening right now for him. He's like, Jesus, do you know you're Jesus? And he's like, yes, I know I'm Jesus. And he's like, well done, son. Come on in. And I remember through the tears, it's just hitting me that the same, <clears throat> that same day will happen for me. That one day, the name of Jesus will become the face of Jesus. That one day, I will blink my last blink in this life, and I will stand before him. And the same way that Dr. Milne lived his life that led to that same day of him hearing, well done, good and faithful servant, became a driving mission for me. And I said, God, I want to live my life <coughs> in such a way that when I see your face, I hear, well done. I want my life to be lived before you because one day I will stand before you. And I'm telling you, let me just be real. When I walk into a hotel room and I'm traveling by myself, I love that the audience of one is there. I love when I sit down at my computer and I'm Googling because the audience of one is there. That it changes 
When you walk through hard times and you feel like no one in the world hears you or sees you or understands, I know there's an audience of one and he's there. And the strength that comes in knowing that my life is going to be lived in such a way so that when I see him, it's well done. That that was the source of wisdom that he ultimately wanted his son to understand. That son, when you understand that you will live your life, your entire life before the audience of one, it changes how you live. And it supercharges because you're connected to the source of wisdom. It changes. It, it makes you lean in with humility because you recognize if God is that big, then I'm that small. And there probably is a lot of perspectives I don't have that I need. And so you want to get a little bit more perspective because you know you don't have it figured out because you know you don't know it all. And you know that the same brain that makes people gather around a will and continue pushing their savings because they're convinced red's going to fall. The same reason that doctors go out of town and people's lives actually start to improve faster. That the tendency is that we miss that our brains work against us. And it makes you lean in. And it leads you to making better decisions and fewer regrets. And that's the gift of a father to a son. But ultimately, that was the gift that I think that comes through the son of God called Jesus. And that you can live your life not regardless of where you've come from. I don't fear I'm going to get up there and he's, he's going to say, well, you don't get in. You haven't been good enough. I know I'm not good enough. I know I'm not perfect. The standard is so big. I can't touch that standard. But I know that standard came down to earth for me. That the standard became my perfection. Even though I never could be. And that my hope is in him. Not me. Not what I do. Not what I can do. I know I'm jacked up. But I know that he was jacked up on a cross for me. And that you, no matter where, no matter what, no matter what decision has marked your life, it does not have to be the remaining mark of your life. That you can live your life in such a way that you can turn to him and in humility cry out to God saying, God, I know what I've done is wrong. But thank you that you did what was right that covers my wrongs. And I trust you. And I depend on you for that hope. That that's, that's all it takes. And that you can step today into that and you can begin to step into that. And I believe that anyone hearing my voice right now can have that day, the same day that Dr. Melanie had of standing before God Almighty and hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. Because the world needs more Dr. Melanie's. The world needs more people who live their life before the audience of one with the courage and with the love and the grace to live and to reflect what made Jesus so amazing and beautiful 2,000 years ago when he walked on this earth. That he was the anchor then and he's the anchor today. And I want to encourage you, that may be a decision that some of you need to make today. And maybe you go to the app and you look at Exploring Faith or you swing by Starting Point or you email me. Chris at EncounterChurch.com or Jason at EncounterChurch.com. 
because we'd love to have a conversation with you about it. But for the rest of us, you have a framework that I hope will help you make better decisions and lead to fewer regrets. Let's pray. Thanks again for joining us. Did you know we've created a free app just for you? Whether you are exploring or want to grow in your faith, the app is a great place to start. If you found today's teaching helpful, we hope you'll subscribe or share it with your friends. We look forward to connecting with you on site or online at Encounter Church soon.